Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tech Chat. Russ here, and I have Dr. Pete with me as well. Hey, Russ, and hi, listeners. It's great to be back on the show, and it's a fantastic time of the year because it is almost Christmas. Well, it's almost Christmas for some people, but uh, for our AWS customers, Christmas has come a little bit earlier this year. Santa and his service team elves have been very busy, Pete. Yes, they've been beavering away till the wee hours of the night uh, to bring you a massive roundup of uh, announcements from our reInvent conference that we've had in Las Vegas. Indeed. So what we're going to do over the next couple of episodes is bring you a lot of those announcements and just dig a little bit deeper so that you can be across uh, all of the new stuff. Absolutely. And have we got a bumper show for you today. So, uh, Russ, uh, there's maybe a new region uh, available in your drop-down combo in the console these days. Uh, there is. So this happened uh, just overnight for us, uh, Pete. So as of December 8th, Canada was fired up. Now, the nice thing about that, obviously, apart from introducing Canada to the fold, was that uh, it's extremely environmentally friendly. Uh, so the, the Canadian data centers draw from a grid that generates 99% of its electricity using hydropower, which is fantastic. Very, very cool. That's part of our global announcements, uh, you know, uh, some time ago around our commitment to making sure that we can use power that is green uh, wherever we have our region. So, yeah, we're definitely working towards that. That's right. The other interesting thing about the, the Canadian data center, Pete, is that uh, some of the ping times, some of the, the latency metrics are incredible. Um, Jeff mm. Barr shared some of these on his blog, and he was um, obviously within Canada. It's, it's fantastic, but even across to the US. So he's getting kind of nine milliseconds to New York, um, you know, 19 milliseconds to Chicago, et cetera. So those latencies between regions um, in North America are really starting to come down. Yes, and in fact, if you do some ping tests across the globe, you may actually find that they've been dropping a little bit. And uh, that's actually also on the back of uh, what we've been talking about at reInvent, where James Hamilton mentioned about a global network that we've been building around the planet. So uh, there'll be more on that in the next, next show. But uh, yeah, it's certainly helping with uh, you know uh, increasing um, throughput and reducing latencies. Indeed. So let's get into some of the announcements. So uh, we announced um, a bunch of new EC2 instance types, Pete, starting off with the R4. Yeah, it, which is really, really cool because um, this is featuring very large, it's a very large instance. It's based on the Intel Broadwell processors and, um, you know, the networking is, you know, incredibly fast as you can probably expect because they are using the Elastic Network Adapter, the ENA. The ENA. Um, so that gives you, you know, up to 20 gigabits of uh, network bandwidth. Um, and the R4 instances offer up to 64 virtual CPUs and up to 488 gigabits of DDR4 memory, which is pretty impressive because these are powered by the Intel Xeon E5 Broadwell processors. So you get a lot of grunt and they're really well suited for memory intensive, uh, um, you know, um, latency sensitive workloads for things like business intelligence and the usual data mining applications, as well as very large distributed web scale memory caches, which more and more of our customers are actually um, beginning to use. And what's also really impressive with the R4 instance is that it has 12 gigabits of dedicated throughput to elastic block storage. So it gives mm. you a lot more access to a lot more data at a much faster, faster rate. Um, and that's incredibly useful for you know a lot of applications like databases and things like that. 
It is, it is indeed. And I think the interesting thing is it's not they're not just uh, bigger boxes in terms of memory. They've actually got a larger L3 cache on there. And as you said, they've also got higher memory speeds as well and faster chips. So uh, mm-hmm. it's all around uh, you're getting a bump on a lot of those, uh, a lot of those metrics. Yeah, so look, essentially, you get a much better I/O throughput at every level on, you know, on chip, as well as from uh, the things like EBS, where you've got possibly a large amount of data coming back and forth between the, the actual uh, virtual machine and the actual storage service. Now, if R4 wasn't enough, we've also announced the T2 instance types, which have been increased by up to four times uh, over and above the baseline performance of. Um, the typical for uh, T2s you might be using. So think of it as we've added, you know, uh, the T2 extra large and a T2 2XL. So these are 16 and 32 gig memory respectively sized instances. Um, and they offer you a much more generous amount of access to a uh, baseline performance so that uh, you can actually now burst all the way up to the entire core uh, when you need the computing power. That's right. Now, I think the use case there was a lot of customers said, you know, we like the burstable nature of the T2, um, which if you're not familiar with it, basically means that you get a consistent baseline of performance, but it's burstable. So when you need that extra performance, um, those uh, those instance types can burst to that and you basically accrue credits when, uh, you know, when the uh, when it's idle and there's not much going on. Mm. Um, but customers said, hey, we like that model, but we actually want uh, some slightly beefier instances. So hence the, um, you know, the new footprints that, uh, that Pete's talked about. Yeah. And we also pronounced the i3, which is a next generation high IO instances, Russ. And these come in six different sizes with up to 64 uh, virtual CPUs and 488 gigabits of RAM. And what's really, really impressive is they come with um, 15.2 terabytes of locally attached mm. SSD storage, which is incredible. Yeah, so that, that's right. So that's kind of twice as big as the previous uh, generation, the i2s, right? Mm, mm. And the, uh, the, the i3s also deliver up to 3.3 million random IOPS at 4K block sizes, which is really cool for you know, random access to uh, very large data sets. Um, and you also get up to 16 gigabytes of sequential disk throughput when you are reading you know, very large chunks of data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we see fantastic workloads in terms of um, obviously high-performance databases and NoSQL databases especially uh, will we'll love the i3s. Yeah, and uh, again, these are also uh, using the Elastic Network Adapter, so you get high throughput uh, from a network, um, and uh, also EBS optimized at no additional cost, which is great as well. So, you know, not only are they um, running the new Xeon V4 Broadwell processors, um, but they're also giving you, again, lots and lots of access uh, to your underlying disk subsystems. That's right. And then, uh, if that wasn't enough, there's also the C5, Pete, as well, which is more of the compute-optimized Yes, so another pre-announcement on the uh, the next generation compute optimized instances, and uh, these are running Intel's um, uh, Skylake Xeon processors with the AVX five twelve advanced instructions. And for those of you who uh, are into that sort of thing, um, these are basically extensions on the advanced vector extensions for SIMD, which is a single instruction, uh, multiple data instructions that have been added to the x86 instruction set. Uh, and that with both Intel and AMD, which actually means that you're getting 512 bits uh, for integer processing, which are very, very large numbers. So they're fantastic for, um, you know, being able to run, uh, you know, fluid dynamics or 3D rendering um, calculations uh, or trying to figure out and do some really cool stuff in machine learning. So the larger the, uh, the integer sizes that you can actually work with, um, the better off you are. So the data can be processed in much, much higher throughput natively by the actual CPU itself. So, yeah, quite an impressive um, 
addition to the uh, to the EC2 family. That's right. Now we should just be clear. So the 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 two we've talked about there, the i3s and the C5s, uh, we pre-announced those, so they should be coming to you early 2017. And the R4s and the T2s are actually GA, so they should be uh, should be available for you now in most regions. Pretty much. And if that wasn't enough, we've added a few more things. Um, like we mentioned that there is now the Elastic GPU. So mm. we've, we've talked about the P2 instances which have onboard um, GPUs, um, but the Elastic GPUs are very interesting because um, you can add these to your instances just like you would use an EBS volume, attach it to an instance. So instead of um, relying on the P2 or the G2 instances, you can launch a, a normal regular EC2 instance and then decide that you want to add additional GPUs to those particular uh, instances. That's right. So I think the use case there, Pete, was that customers said occasionally we have workloads where we need a little bit of GPU, so we don't want to kind of jump to the P2, mm -hmm. um, but we just want to to have it when we need it. Um, or customers who said, look, we do use quite a bit of GPU, but we need the um, the higher amounts of compute memory or storage that we get on a on a on another EC2 instance. So that's why we we made that uh, elastic so that you can essentially attach it to those other instances. Which is pretty cool because what happens is if you're using the Amazon optimized OpenGL libraries, um, they will automatically detect that you are using the Elastic GPUs when they've been attached to those particular instances. So that's really cool. So if you're running a Windows workload um, using OpenGL, we're also looking at um, DirectX and Vulkan uh, extensions to be able to also detect these uh, automatically. Um, so that means that you, know, you can do things in software uh, if you haven't attached the Elastic GPU, um, but when you do actually attach it, um, we will automatically make use of that. So the other thing that's interesting about that is that um, we've also, which you may have missed this, it's a, it was a, one, of the, one of the many announcements we had this year, but we also acquired a company called Nice Software. Um, and what they do is they've provided a lot of great functionality for um, virtualization um, and desktop and being able to stream at very high bit rates 3D, OpenGL, and DirectX um, graphics across the network for specifically for cloud computing. So mm. if you start to use the um, the nice DCV um, um, software that's also bundled, uh, you're going to be able to get access to um, streaming content really, really quickly. And as a part of that. Uh, was there a question there, Russ? Uh, I, had, I had a question, I think. It wasn't a question, actually, Pete. I was just uh, reminiscing, actually. All this talk about GPUs and OpenGL and DirectX was making me very nostalgic mm. for the kind of late 80s, uh, 1990s. Uh, and I know that you and I are from the same vintage, so I'm sure you can relate to this, <laughs> where you would have your, your, your PC with your video, card, your video card in it, and then you'd go around to a mate's place and you always had a mate who could play Half-Life 2 at a much higher frame rate than you could on your PC. And so you'd be extremely jealous. So you'd go home and you'd say, right, I'm going to get a new video card. And then you'd do research. And then for about two weeks, you would be the absolute expert on the current state of, of video card technology. Uh -huh. you, could, you could talk about how many chips, the clock rates, how much memory. Uh, you could talk about whether you could have... Um, two running in parallel, all that kind of thing. And then oh, you were overclocking them even. Remember those you could over, that's right, overclocking, how to, how to cool it, mm -hmm. um, all that. Heat sinks, then you start going down this heat sink rat hole as well. Uh, and, then, and then you'd make your purchase, you'd finally make a decision, and then you'd be happy because then you could run you know, your favorite 3D games at ridiculous frame rates. And then, of course, you'd forget all about the video cards. And then a year later or two years later, you'd pop your head up again and look at the market. And, of course, it had completely changed by then. 
and there's been so much you know evolution in this space you know um you know um, hardware based rendering engines and offloading of a whole bunch of 3d processing has been in the market for quite a while but you know you always have to pay for it um so yeah this 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 new uh service where you can attach elastically gpus uh, really gives you you know lots more flexibility and in fact if you happen to know someone or you happen to work in an organization does uh, or wants to um, um you know go through a certification program whether your software will work with the elastic gpus um, you can actually sign up for the aws graphics certification program um, and uh, what we'll do is we'll actually help you to um, not pay for um, you know access to some of these for, during a testing period which is fantastic so that's part of us trying to say hey ecosystem if you've got these great 3d um, you know, games or applications um, you can basically um, have a go at uh, getting the certified as well which is always yeah handy. That, yeah that's great now following or in that vein Pete uh, looking at kind of uh, very specific hardware acceleration tell us what's going on with the F1s uh, with their field programmable gate arrays yeah, so these are actually now in developer preview. So the F1 instance is really, really interesting um, as you'll get access to FPGAs. So FPGAs in summary really um, are hardware devices that have already been plugged into say a motherboard, for example. And they're like a CPU, except they're running you know, microcode if you like. Um, and the idea is that uh, you know, in contrast to a normal CPU, which has got you know, pre-built and you, know, you can't modify the internals of the processor, uh, with FPGAs, you can actually flash those and reprogram them on the fly, which is yeah. fabulous because you can be out in the field somewhere and you go, you know what, we need to optimize this or do an update. Uh, and you can simply just you know, upload a new version of an application. And this thing runs at incredibly high, high clock rates um, because these are running at, you know, at the level of the gates. So things like AND and XOR gates and um, looking at um, the register levels, uh, all of this stuff gets done really, really quickly at very high bit rates. And typically CPUs operate at, you know, say, you know, 32 or 64 bits, so word sizes. Um, FPGAs uh, actually have the functionality where you define how big the word size is because all of these can offer and run in parallel. So they can do one operation in parallel. Um, the word sizes can be much, much larger and can be done in parallel. So it's really impressive. So you can get up to at least, you know, um, say 30%, uh, 30 times, in fact, performance improvements uh, over uh, your application. So we've released instances that actually support the ability uh, uh, to create um, essentially field programmable gate arrays um, that are part of that instance. Um, and you can put your code onto those to get massive parallel functionality uh, to do things like um, digital signal processing. Fantastic. What, uh, what other applications would you look at uh, on the, the, VP, the FPGAs, Pete? Also, look, anything that has to do with processing vast amount of information. So, so look, when, when you, um, you know, turn on the F1 instance, um, we give you up to eight FPGAs. So these have been designed for, uh, at a very small scale. So these are very small. So these are 16 micron. Um, they have uh, 64 gig of uh, protected memory and a 288-bit wide bus, with, uh, which is, goes to the uh, DDR4 RAM. So that gives you high throughput for memory access. Um, they're also connected via a PCIe uh, X16 interface to the CPU, which means the memory is mapped from the FPGA into your, into your uh, application as well. So you get huge throughput. Um, these devices come with 2.5 million logic elements, which kind of gives you about 
6800 um, DSP engines. So you can literally do almost anything, Russ, to put it mildly. So anything to do with signal processing, uh, trying to do compression, decompression uh, can be addressed by these particular FPGAs. And if that wasn't enough, you know, this is a bit of a black art because um, you can't just take your normal application code that you've developed in C, at least you know, not, not easily, um, and, make, and just recompile it for the FPGAs. Um, you do actually have to go through a bit of a process um, where you do have to learn a little bit about uh, programming FPGAs. And to help you with that, um, we've actually got an, uh, an Amy available, uh, which you can launch uh, on, on you know, F1 or other instance types uh, to actually start to uh, code and simulate and verify your application. So the way you normally program these things is via uh, Verilog or VHDL, which are just programming languages, um, and then use you know, a whole bunch of libraries potentially uh, on top of that uh, to give you more functionality. So a lot of these programming languages look like C, but in fact they're not. So you can't take a C application and reprogram it, sorry, and recompile it, but what you could do is you could actually look at things like OpenCL and uh, OpenCL is effectively, uh, it's a high level abstraction because programming FPGAs, it's sort of like saying, we're gonna program in assembly language again and not everyone's that way inclined. So if you go for something like uh, OpenCL, which is uh, using the C99 language, which is very much C-like, uh, you can even use GCC with a couple of command line switches to be able to generate um, FPGA code from uh, C applications. So you can actually take some of your code over, but you do have to learn uh, a few concepts, uh, things like latency, understanding when um, how registers work, uh, as well as things like uh, Boolean algebra. All of these things are very useful uh, to know because when you when you start to work in the world of FPGAs, you need to worry about things like clock edges and clock cycles um, because this is all about really low-level timing. So not for the faint-hearted rust, but certainly uh, if you can d dive that deep, uh, you can get some massive performance improvements on your applications. Now, Pete, we obviously, we shouldn't play favourites here, but would it be fair to say that the announcement of the F1 was one of your favourite announcements from reInvent? <laughs> well, one of the many. And I must say, Russ, it feels like Christmas. It really does. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like a kid who's just been given way too many gifts and I don't know where to start. As soon as, you know, I wrap off the, uh, you know, the wrapping of one service, uh, there's, uh, you know, a whole bunch of others waiting for my unpackaging. How do you feel about that? Uh, I feel exactly the same way and uh, I feel a bit like uh, my own children who when you give them too much instead of sitting down and and really looking at the gift that they've got and working out how they're going to play with it and really diving deep they kind of uh, have a quick glance at it and then they're off to the next one I feel a bit like that at the moment and has hasn't this been an amazing bumper um, reinvent I mean so it's... many announcements in uh, just a handful of days and uh, and they're all awesome they are indeed. Uh, talking of awesome, uh, let's talk a little bit about Amazon LightSail. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea here is that obviously within AWS, you've got a lot of fantastic components and we basically you know, allow you to construct your architecture in, in whatever manner you see fit. But some customers just want to get up and running quickly and just want um, much more of a pre-configured type environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way that I like to look at this is actually the very similar to the way that my wife and I look at furniture. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah, which is that um, uh, I quite like to have things pre-configured and basically built for me and then just given to me in their, in their final state. Whereas my wife actually likes to get all of the components and then construct it herself. Okay, so she's, she's, she's an IKEA she, girl then. Is that what you're saying? She, that's, she, she's, she's, got, uh, she's got more Allen keys than uh, <laughs> then 
there are she's got allen keys that i didn't even know existed she's got sizes that uh, i don't quite know what they fit but um she has them so uh, and that's really uh what's going on with light sail whereas obviously you can construct your architecture in, in whichever way you want to mm-hmm. but with light sail you can actually get up and running very quickly uh with some pre-configured components and i think you've had a, actually had a chance to to play with this particular prezi Pete. i i did so light sail is really cool and it's really useful when just sometimes you just want a server or potentially, you know, you've been conditioned using virtual private servers and hopping onto the AWS, you know, um, EC2 console might be a little bit overwhelming. Um, in, I mean, I, I hopped on and in less than probably seven minutes, I had uh, a couple of instances running. And the idea behind LightSail is that you just want potentially one or a couple of machines, virtual machines, um, and you just want them up and running really quickly. So you log in through LightSail. Uh, if you've got an AWS account already, you use the same account. Uh, you hop on uh, and there's a very quick wizard that you go through that launches a virtual machine. So in about three minutes, I had a, a couple of machines running. Uh, I managed to configure uh, the IP addresses were already assigned. Um, I also managed to add my own custom DNS record for my, um, for my Linux box. And uh, I was up and running. And one of the coolest things about LightSail is that a lot of our customers have been saying, uh, we want to con- con- constrain the costs and the price of um, an instance starts at $5 per month, Russ. It's really mm. cost effective. It's great. And I think one of the interesting things too is that is that often with these types of things, you sometimes feel like you're you're kind of locked into a configuration that you can't really break out of as you as you need to grow over time. And we've been very conscious of that with light sales. So mm. you can obviously grow as you need to. But also if you need to connect that server with other infrastructure that you're running yourself in another VPC, you can actually do that. So LightSail will run in what we call a shadow VPC, and then you can actually peer that VPC with another one. So you're not kind of just locked into uh, everything running in that one VPC. And it's really straightforward as well. I mean, you just hop in in the, uh, in the console there and go to the advanced settings and tick a box and tell us which VPC you want to peer with, and you're done. Mm. Um, so as your needs grow, um, you can evolve over time. And the other nice thing about it is you can basically do this very similar things like um, you know, snapshot your machines for backups. You can very quickly set up DNS records. And I said, I'm already mentioning the IP addressing. Um, all that stuff is really simple. Uh, to be honest, it's about as simple as my son could use. So if you want to put a, you know, a Minecraft server for your kids for Christmas um, and pay you know, five bucks a month, um, you know, that's great. You know, it does give you some peace of mind that you know, your kids aren't going to... Um, Blow the budget, or your applications are going to exceed your uh, your preferred sc- your spend. So very very useful. Pete, uh, I have to say I'm not that surprised that uh, that your son would be that way inclined. That he would be uh, enjoy playing with uh, playing with with all the kind of stuff that you enjoy playing with. Yes, there, I think there's some genetics involved here. I suspect, <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, I, I I get I've had a chance to talk about all the cool stuff that I've enjoyed. Now, what about you, Russ? What, what has come, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a Santa box uh, waiting for you from an AWS perspective? Because we've had you know a lot of cool stuff, namely something called Athena, which I believe is a goddess of wisdom, craft, and war in ancient Greek re- religion and mythology. But I don't think that's exactly what uh, AWS had in mind. I think it was the the wisdom piece. I think was I think the was. Uh, the main driver for the name. Uh, and you're right. There's always that one big prezi that you, your parents always leave uh, to the end for you. And uh, for me, that was Amazon Athena. Now, just to understand that, let me just give you a little bit of history, Pete, about um, what's been happening in the big data space. So, 
when when Hadoop was first released, it was fantastic because you could access large data sets um, very easily, etc. Parallel uh, parallelize them across lots of um, machines. Mm-hmm. And of course, as we've talked about on previous episodes, the first thing that happens is that people want a slightly easier interface to use other than, say, writing in Java, for example. Right. So that happened with Hadoop. And the very first um, kind of more uh, slightly higher level abstracted language was Hive, which runs a a SQL-like language. Mm -hmm. So that allowed people with SQL skills to now get access to that data. And Hive would then translate between that SQL language into, into MapReduce code. The problem with that was that it was a little bit slow and clunky because it had to run in the MapReduce framework, which was a little bit slow. So then a number of uh, new SQL interfaces um, were released, and one of those was built by Facebook, uh, and it was called Presto. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind Presto was that you would get SQL access to the data, but it would sidestep all of the slow bits in MapReduce and essentially go straight to the data that was either sitting in HDFS or sitting in S3. Right. Uh, And that's become extremely popular. A lot of people love Presto for that reason because you can then give people SQL access to very large data sets, especially if you're using S3 because then, of course, um, you can keep enormous amounts of data in S3 without without a lot of cost because it's so cheap to to keep it there. So let me get this straight, Russ. So what you're telling me is I can keep all my data in S3 and not have to worry about spinning up an EMR cluster or any other uh, mass parallel, you know, um, MapReduce kind of infrastructure. That is correct, Pete. Yes. So, so before Athena, you could you could do it through spinning up, say, EMR, for example, with Presto, and then you could uh, you could use Presto on S3 that way. Mm-hmm. But obviously, then you are you, you know you are managing that that uh, that cluster. So the next step from there was was to then introduce a managed service along those lines. Uh, and uh, as you say, that became uh, uh, Amazon Athena. So the idea with Athena is that you don't spin up a server. You simply just write a query. So you can do that via the console or through a JDBC driver as well. So the JDBC driver obviously then gives you the ability to spin up any kind of SQL tool or BI tool that you like. And then when you run that query, we will then... Uh, run that query for you um, on a cluster that will then uh, talk to S3 um, and and give you back the answer. So extremely powerful to give you that ability um, to access that data. So is there anything I need to worry about myself? Do I just point Athena at my S3 bucket and is that it? Well, obviously you need to have uh, data that conforms to some structure. So um, it it can be JSON, for example, doesn't have to be fully structured, it could be semi structured. But what you're going to be doing with Presto is creating a a table. uh, So a table like structure, you know, with with columns, etc, that's going to map to the data. So the data can't be completely unstructured, it needs to have obviously some, some structure to it. So things like we're thinking about things like logs, clickstream data, that kind of thing, where, you know, it does have a uh, some kind of structure to it. Okay. And um, now the inch, the other interesting thing, Pete, is that then we're actually going to only charge you um, per query. So how so? So the way that's going to work is it's actually good, you're going to be charged per terabyte of data that you scan for that query. Got it. Now there's a little bit of nuance here, which is that the the better compression that you can have on the data the less we'll charge you because the less oh, data we actually need to scan. Nice. And you can push that even further by using a columnar data format. So say something like Parquet, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which means that when we're querying the data uh, in S3, 
we don't have to read all of the redundant data in the in the data set we can basically just pull out the columns you're after perfect so yeah so there's definitely uh some uh some benefit in uh potentially moving that data to parquet and also to um or or orc which is another columnar format Mm -hmm. um and also uh compressing it as well because that will obviously um give you um allow you to to run those queries at uh, at less cost so very exciting uh i think that's ga now in us east um so if you want to jump on and have a play with that um please do wow so that's uh, very disruptive so um speaking of things like aurora um there was also another announcement that we made um at reinvent and that this time it involves postgres that's right so amazon aurora as many of you know is uh was originally our uh, MySQL compatible database and we really built that from the ground up to address a number of, um, of issues that a lot of people had with uh, databases, OLT, data, OLTP databases at scale and that was things like durability and availability and things like that. And so we tried to really take care of that with Aurora so that you didn't have to, to worry about that. Uh, and that was fantastic and uh, Aurora is actually our, the, the fastest, fastest growing service we've ever had. The biggest question that we got from customers was can you please release this and make it uh, postgres compatible um mm-hmm. for a number of for a number of reasons a lot of people l- love postgres um it's it's uh, one of the most popular open source databases it's also got some lovely features especially around some of the geospatial functionality in in postgres etc so so that's what we've done pete we've we've released aurora uh, or sorry it's in preview at the moment but we mm-hmm. will release it with um postgres uh, compatibility, which is fantastic. Perfect. So is it the same idea as MySQL? I can bring my Postgres database ingested um, and then also push it out, provided I haven't exceeded the uh, the, the crazy limits that uh, um, you know Postgres actually exceeds for the traditional um, database sizes. That's right. Yeah. So it, we will probably follow this a very similar pattern that we have with the MySQL version, where we'll make it very easy to migrate to uh, to Aurora with Postgres if. Uh, uh, when it comes out. Wow, very, very impressive. Wow, there's there's two gifts right there. Yes, that's right. <laughs> well, I've got another one. This one's for me. Um, and um, have you no, heard you of Greengrass? When you, say, when you say it's for you, mm-hmm. you mean it's you, you, are, you will be sharing with everybody else? No, 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 I'm not sharing this one. This is, this, this is a cool one. This is one of those <laughs> ones that, you know, sits under the Christmas tree and no one, and I mean no one gets it, not even your siblings. <laughs> <laughs> no, all jokes aside, um, this is for everyone to, to get access to, but it's currently in limited preview, so it's kind of a little bit away at the back of the Christmas tree, um, and it's called Greengrass. Now, Russ, um, you know, um, what were your thoughts when you heard about Greengrass? Uh, well, I was very excited, Pete. Probably not as excited as you, uh, but uh, I was very excited because it's kind of that first step to just pushing some of that functionality out to the edge. Mm. And yeah, look, IoT is the big theme, and uh, all kinds of different devices are you know are now making their way into a consumer consumption. And look, in Greengrass really is software that lets you run local compute messaging and data caching for connected devices in a very, very secure way. So in other words, um, it brings the power of things like AWS Lambda to devices. 
which is really cool. So if you have IoT devices of any kind that generally would want to connect to um, the cloud for connectivity, you know, that's not always the case. If you happen to be at the back of a, the desert somewhere and there's no connectivity of any kind, then generally you would be in trouble. But the idea of um, Greengrass is to allow those devices uh, to continue operating in a local mode, so local events, our local data, local caching, they can still talk to each other without the need to actually connect back to the, um, to the actual cloud. So it's really handy because um, it allows you to continue operating your infrastructure in a, essentially a limited scale-down mode. Those devices can basically upload and sync up later with the cloud once connectivity has been re uh, restored. But during periods of uh, connectivity disruption, you're fine, your app still works. So it's a very, very, very cool way of building applications. And you get an SDK for this, um, you get to deploy it on your devices, um, and uh, when connectivity is restored, you're up and running again, which is very cool. That's great. I think a couple of the, obviously there are a myriad of applications that could take advantage of this, but I think a couple that were mentioned were things like medical devices and safety sensors, et cetera, which need you know, that really, really very, very low latency and obviously, um, you know, can't tolerate any loss of network. Yeah, I mean, if this is a life or death um, IoT device or a solution that you've built, uh, you certainly don't want to rely on its, um, you know, uptime uh, purely tied to network connectivity. If you lose connectivity, you still want things to keep working. So, um, yeah, very, very cool, very critical. Fantastic. So what about what data, Russ? So, you know, you're the big data guy. Um, you know, what about the announcement around Snowball Edge? You know, did that tickle uh, the inner geek? Yes, it did, Pete. The Snowball Edge is um, kind of the next revision of the, the Snowball. So we talked about Snowball previously, which is actually the physical device that will ship to you to allow you to load up with large amounts of data and then ship back to us. So this is a suitcase-sized, you know, protected, encrypted set of hard drives that we ship from AWS to your premise. You load up your data and you send it back to us. That's the one. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, so the new version, Snowball Edge, uh, is around about 100 terabytes capacity, but we've added a couple of nice things to it. So there's a couple of different uh, interfaces now. So there's an NFS and also an S3 endpoint. Nice. Which is quite nice, yeah. So you can plug it in and then just talk to it as if it were S3. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Uh, you can cluster them together as well. So uh, a couple of customers said, look, um, it'd be nice if you could actually, if we could kind of, uh, you know, raid them essentially or load balance them across a couple of snowballs. So you can do that. Mm -hmm. And one of the most exciting things, harking back to what you were just talking about, is that there is also Greengrass integration as well. So it will actually run Lambda on the device. Very nice. So there you go. He's a, a great use case for why that would make sense. Yeah, when you obviously, you know, you get the snowball for a reason um, because you can't get it over the uh, over your WAN connection into AWS fast enough. So you get the appliance and um, very nice, right? So so that's really cool. Okay, assuming you know, a hundred terabytes is a lot of capacity. But mm -hmm. what if I've got a truckload of data? A lot more than that. What do I do? Well, Pete, if you've got a truckload of data, you get a truck. Right. And would that be some kind of a snowmobile that we've just announced? It would indeed. It would indeed. So many of you probably saw the semi-trailer that came on stage at reInvent uh, during uh, Andy Jesse's keynote. Uh, but essentially, for, you know, it, for a lot of customers, they do have such enormous amounts of data um, that they uh, that they just can't ship it um, mm -hmm. over the over the um, the interwebs. 
um, it's just simply not uh, not possible. So the snowmobile is uh, 100 petabytes. Um, wow, that's per, huge. Per snowmobile. That's, that's big, yeah. So it's basically a 45-foot-long shipping container pulled by a semi-trailer. And we literally drive it up to your data center and leave it there, mm. uh, connect it up to, to your network, and then you're able to move data obviously much, much faster than you could if you were pushing it over the internet. Wow. So, Russ, uh, I also understand that we will uh, uh, send the car and some guards along for the ride because obviously your data is uh, secret and private and you don't want that being lost uh, or driven off the road. Um, that's right. That's right. So let me let me read you the list, Pete, because it's, it's, uh, it's great. So you get uh, dedicated security personnel, GPS tracking, cool. alarm monitoring, mm-hmm. 24-7 video surveillance, and an optional escort security vehicle while in transit. So that's from a physical perspective. Then obviously we're going to encrypt all the data with 256-bit encryption, um, et cetera, uh, just to ensure you know security and full chain of custody and all of that kind of fun stuff. So um, yes, a really interesting, innovative uh, solution to to the problem of massive massive data sets. That's pretty funky. That's, that's almost like your private availability zone on wheels. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're right. That's that's massive. Wow. Well, there you go, guys. If uh, if you got you know big demands for um, data, and a lot of the um, the geo providers that provide map- mapping information uh, or have you know large libraries of um, very historical archive footage, for example, um, all of those are potentially candidates for this, which is um, going to be very interesting. So look out for the truck on the road. That's right. That's right. Cool. Now, uh, another personal favorite of mine is gaming. Um, and uh, we've also um, made another announcement around something called AppStream 2.0, Russ. That was another one of those um, uh, new announcements as well. Excellent. So tell us, tell us, Pete, what's uh, what's new in 2.0 from previous versions? Well, so um, a little over two years ago, we introduced Amazon Workspaces. So hopefully, most of you had a chance to play with the fully managed, you know, secure desktop in the cloud. Um, and now we're sort of announcing AppStream 2.0, which actually builds on uh, the original AppStream service. Uh, we launched AppStream in 2013, and it started off as an SDK service uh, that you could actually build streaming experiences into your desktop application. So what that meant was, if you had a desktop app uh, running on Windows, and you want, so for example, uh, maybe you wanted to be a game cloud provider, um, then or, you know, take a business application and put it on uh, multiple devices or platforms, um, then you would integrate with the SDK. But we actually found that was a little bit difficult for customers to get started because um, many times they didn't have access to the source code. And this required a little bit of integration work with uh, DirectX or the uh, actual graf- graphical subsystems. So we went back to um, um, the drawing board and went to make this even more successful and more available uh, with our customers. You know, how could we make this simpler? And you know, we're big on customer obsession and inventing and, and simplifying. Um, and also, the other challenge with um, the original approach was that it, you had to use a G2 2XL instance, uh, which in many cases was potentially an overkill. So we've now gone back to the drawing board and AppStrip 2.0 um, lets you essentially run and deliver your application in HTML5. Um, on Windows or Macs or Chromebooks or Linux boxes, um, wherever you've got a HTML5 browser, you'll be able to stream the frame of your application to those end users. So this basically gives you an instant on access to your applications. That's great, Pete. What about uh, things like printing and listening to audio and things like that? Yeah, so all that stuff can actually be is supported. Uh, so obviously the app will print um, 
it, it resides on the server itself, so it's actually in the cloud. Um, but we do deliver audio to the the endpoint um, and also keystrokes. So basically, think of it as publishing your application um, to any endpoint in a browser um, that is essentially a graphically intensive application. And we do this over a secure HTTPS connection. Uh, so all your pixels are encrypted and streamed to the end users, um, which means that you know your data is secure. Um, it also so AppStream supports identity federation. So if you have um, um, Active Directory, for example, um, and you only want to give a subset of access to those particular applications, uh, you can do that. Um, and most most interestingly, is you don't need a G2 instance anymore. So you can actually run um, AppStream 2.0 uh, on general purpose or compute optimized or memory optimized instances. Um, and not have to uh, rely on the G2 uh, 2XL as we as you had to do in the past. And I already mentioned earlier that uh, we acquired a company called Nice uh, Nice Software, um, and they've got something called the Desktop Cloud Virtualization Technology, which is actually part of this. And that's really all about being able to deliver highly interactive, you know, very fluid experiences uh, with you know very graphic intensive um, um, you know pixel information uh, to the end browser. So that's all baked in now. So um, yeah, hopefully. Um, um, that'll make the uh, experience of delivering those applications from a single code base uh, to a myriad of different client devices a lot easier for our customers. And Pete, who do you see as the major consumers of a service like this? Look, to be honest, um, almost everyone. Um, but if you want to start your own, uh, we mentioned Minecraft before, if you want to run Minecraft, uh, <laughs> start a game cloud organization, or if you're just an enterprise wishing to deliver a uh, either a legacy application that you don't have access to, but it's critically available or needs to be available on a desktop, and you want to give your workforce a mobile device which just supports a HTML5 browser, um, that, those apps can be extended um, to those particular use cases. So I would say almost everybody. Fantastic. Very, uh, very nice service. Yes, and uh, look, uh, it's great to see that we've managed to evolve it to the next level and make it even simpler for our customers to use. That's right. Now, Pete, uh, we have talked a lot uh, in this episode, so why don't we just finish off with one last service mm -hmm. before we go for this episode. Tell us about EC2 Systems Manager. Yes, yeah, so Amazon EC2 Systems Manager is really a, it's a management service that helps you automatically collect your software inventory, uh, apply things like Windows operating system patches, uh, create system images, and generally configure your, your Windows, but also your Linux operating systems. Um, so these basically help you to define and track your system configurations, um, stop uh, you know, configuration drifts coming into place, uh, and also maintain your software compliance. Now, the way you can actually accomplish this is um, even if you have hybrid cloud infrastructure and architectures, this is still possible. Uh, generally, and a lot of this stuff is very time consuming and costly. You got to worry about a whole swag of different tools and licenses that go for the ride. Um, so what we've come up with is this simple service that allows you to manage your entire fleet. So whether you're in AWS cloud or off cloud, uh, we actually allow you to uh, use the systems manager to be able to oversee your infrastructure. And it's got some really, um, <clears throat> excuse me, interesting use cases because it gives you control and visibility into uh, a whole bunch of things. So, so for example, you can have a look at your, um, your software compliance. Um, you can also use uh, functionality like the run command, which you may have already used. Um, look at the inventory of your infrastructure. But what I thought, found was really interesting was the parameter store. 
And the parameter store gives you the ability to encrypt um, you know, um, information that you may be using as a part of your administration or scripts. So if, you, if you've been hard coding things into your environment, you can actually use the parameter store as a nice way to actually get configurations in and out um, of the service so that these are not um, you know, hard coded in your infrastructure. And these are managed um, and protected by KMS, the key management service. Um, so it makes it really simple to, encry to encrypt critical information. So Russ, it's a great uh, administrator's toolkit. And Pete, is that available now? Uh, it certainly is. Excellent. Uh, okay. Yes. Great. Sign in and grab it. All right. Now, we've mentioned gaming a couple of times during this episode, and uh, you yourself have said you're a self-confessed gamer. Mm -hmm. So I thought uh, just before we sign off, uh, there was a, a very interesting and innovative piece of work going on with the Sydney Summit next year that I think you wanted to tell us about. Yeah, look, guys, um, it is coming up to that uh, that break, end of the year for everybody, and obviously kids are going to be home. Um, so uh, I wanted to announce the AWS Game On Challenge. Uh, so if you go to www.awsgameonononeword.com.au, it's a website that talks about getting your kids excited over the Christmas period um, and actually go and play and you know, with our our, our lumberyard software, which is the game creation um, application, the IDE for building games, which is what Amazon Studios used to build games. And the competition is open to um, Australian uh, uh, year 10, 11, and 12 students. Um, and what it means is if um, you sign up, You'll get a whole bunch of swag. Uh, there's going to be some events held both in Melbourne and Sydney uh, where you can come along and learn how to make games. Uh, and essentially, hopefully, with the intention that you can submit your games um, in the competition. And you know, there are a whole bunch of online um, videos and getting started guides. Uh, the very thing that would hopefully keep uh, your kids busy during the, um, the end of year uh, break. Uh, and uh, it's open now. So sign up. Great stuff. Thanks, Pete. Well, uh, everyone, I hope you really enjoyed this initial roundup of some of the reInvent announcements. In the next episode, we will continue because uh, obviously there were a lot. So we'll continue on with that next episode. So I look forward to hearing from you then. Yeah, we are so not done. I mean, this is just part one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thanks for tuning in. Love to have you tuning into the show and uh, we'll be in your ears shortly. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Signing off, this is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.